Greetings, kids, and welcome to Let Me Tell You What I Know, a podcast by The Real Nubian on Twitter where I talk about music, politics, pop culture, and whatever the hell I want. Basically, giving you my two cents that nobody asked for. <laughs> welcome to episode 20. And who could have imagined that I would do 20 episodes? I am personally in a state of shock. <laughs> but I would not have been able to do so without your support, encouragement, and patience. Especially those who have supported me behind the scenes with constructive criticism and constant feedback. You know who you are. (laughs) And for the friends who joined me as guest hosts, I love you all beyond measure. So today, because I was short for content, (laughs) and I didn't want to make another rant about what's happening in, in the world or Twitter, I decided to go for another Q&A or question and answer, as the content creators would call it, uh, from the good friends on Twitter. So buckle up because some of these questions will need an entire essay to answer. (laughs) So it's a common joke among online content creators that when they run out of material to talk about, they resort to questions and answers with their audience. And I find this very realistic when it comes to me, not only because I ran out of material sometimes, but because I personally get overwhelmed with material. There is so much to talk about, especially with someone who spends a lot of time online like myself. Let's take this week, for example. I can tell you what I know about the Olympics, the latest COVID-19 updates, speak for hours about United States politics or internet personality dramas, and I can actually make an entire career out of that. But it takes time and effort to create useful and organized notes for that. And otherwise, I will just ramble on and on for hours (laughs) if no one stops me. And here I go rambling again. So back to the questions. Uh, I posted a request on Twitter a few weeks ago asking you guys to ask me anything. And I got a few questions that I really, really liked. And because I got a limited number of questions, I actually have the luxury to answer all of them. So here we go. Uh, The first question was from Cindy, my ride or die, my homegirl, the girl's so beautiful she should be uh, a fashion influencer, but but she's busy with bigger and better things. So she asks, uh, do you judge hotel and restaurant pens? And this question is amazing because she knows me so well. Uh, Everybody knows that I'm a stationary snob and I can talk a lot about my pens, my notebooks and my inks (laughs) to anyone who would listen. I could talk for hours. I can actually start a stationary podcast if I wanted. Okay, so so to answer her question, I kind of do. I realize that they want to reduce costs, but uh, so they choose cheaper pens. But there are so many affordable options that perform beautifully and they can opt to use them if they care like Pilot, uh, Pilot, Pentel, or Zebra pens. Some of these are really cheap and they would write beautifully no matter where you put them or how you write with them. And it, <laughs> and obviously, I'm a Japanese stationery stan. I love the pens. I love the paper. They have one of the most beautiful paper in the world that is called Tomoe River paper. And I can just t- talk and talk about this forever. So anyway, um, I especially side-eye hotels because the point of providing stationery for their guests is to engage in some sort of long-form writing. You get those A4 or letter-sized stationery and notepads, and you could write notes, uh, write letters, 
if people still write letters. Actually, there are people who still <laughs> write letters. But anyway, the point of using a pen in a hotel is more of a long form writing. So they should invest in decently performing pens. While in a restaurant, I get it. You just need to sign a quick signature. So the quality of the pen is not important as long as it works for that moment. So yeah, I judge hotel and restaurant pens, but not as harshly as one would expect from me. <laughs> so yeah, the second question was from Evandrel, and they asked, what is the biggest challenge you faced since the last episode? And the last episode was about three weeks ago. I would comfortably say that the biggest challenge I have faced was recording this episode and talk about, you know, first world problems. I made a good decision last month to post short episodes as life updates or recaps of what's happening on Twitter. And I managed to actually do that for, for like a week and a half where I would post uh, a 15 minute episode every three or four days. And that went really well. But unfortunately, life happened and I completely lost my momentum. So it took me then forever to script this episode and another lifetime, like cue the SpongeBob meme and eternity later <laughs> to record it. And I wanted to script it because I didn't want to spend a lot of time, um, you know, rambling and then editing the rambles and ahs and ums. <laughs> so a script had to happen. And I think I'm comfortable enough now to actually read a script without sounding monotone or uh, robotic <laughs> like I used to in the beginning. So yeah, this may seem like a trivial challenge, but luckily and unfortunately for me, <laughs> this is <laughs> this is the biggest challenge I had to face in the past in the past three weeks. And I could talk about how executive dysfunction can be a problem, <laughs> or that I got too busy at work. But I actually find this this issue a challenge because I feel very passionate about this podcast and I absolutely envy people who can do this full time. I just can't afford to quit my day job right now. <laughs> so the third question, I, I hope this was a sufficient answer for, for, for this question and I wasn't so disappointing with my first world problems. So anyway, moving to the third question and the third question was from Metamorphosis Rocks. Roxanne is a good old friend of mine and she has a YouTube channel that's actually really cool. Uh, and she asks, what do you think we accomplish when we fight all these people on social media? Do you believe like I do that maybe someone reading might open their mind enough to consider other viewpoints or is it more of a getting something out of our chest thing? I'm very curious to know. Other, our friend Dara replied that I find it cathartic because I'm a very odd human. <laughs> There, I love you for saying this. So, I'm always hopeful that someone would read our exchanges with bigots. Yes, I, I liberally call them bigots. I don't do this, oh, we have different viewpoints kind of thing, because I would not waste my time arguing with people on Twitter over their taste in music, or if they like the pineapple on their pizza, or the type of clothes that they love to wear. I have issues with people with bigoted opinions, with dangerous opinions. And these are the people I spent most of my energy talking to or, or debating with or arguing with or, or blocking eventually. <laughs> so I'm always hopeful that someone would read the exchanges and actually change their mind about something. And I have an anecdote for that. It actually happened to me on Arabic media. A lot of you know that I was on Arabic Twitter since 2011 and I had quite the following back then. 
and I had a lot of friends from different Arabic countries who had very progressive opinions at the time and eventually when we got sick of the pushback someone someone in probably Malaysia or China I'm not really sure created another platform called path path was similar to Twitter but if you have a private account so you would only interact with your friends and you didn't have a character limit so it was very appealing because we got tired of like insults and arguing and fighting and a lot of us just moved to path of course over time you would start with your friends that when the people you know and then uh, some other people like mutuals of mutuals would add you up and I had this friend who was really cool and really progressive <laughs> but I haven't but I didn't have any interaction with him before path I didn't know him on Twitter at all. Like, I did, didn't think I knew him on Twitter. One day, we're chatting, and he's like, uh, how about you add me on Twitter? And I go to his account. <laughs> I go to his account, and I find him one of the people I had a long, huge argument with, and I actually blocked him, like, three years prior. And I was shocked with the change that happened to this man. So even if you change one person who is, like, watching and... <laughs> I say this affectionately, uh, lurking on the sidelines, watching your arguments that you present, and they open their minds and hearts to something that they were bigoted against once upon a time, it's good enough for me. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, th I am hopeful that someone would change their mind by reading what we write every day. And yes, I find it cathartic. <laughs> I'm a Libra sun and an Aquari Aquarius rising. So it's very difficult for me to stay silent seeing any sort of bigotry or, in or injustice. And because of how the world is set up right now, it can be difficult for many of us to participate in activities that can actually cause tangible change. Believe it or not, I'm in a part of, of the world where my voice is literally not important. I can't vote in the country that I live in, and my vote in my own country is completely disregarded. So I can't actively participate in political change or political action, and the best I can do is participating in social change and because of how the world is set up again a lot of us can't actually do this on the ground um, the best we can do is speak up on social media platforms so we raise awareness and you know um, open discussions and uh, present different viewpoints etc and for my for me personally I can only practice my activism quote-unquote on the ground by educating my my immediate family and friends and advocating for them and advocating for my patients. Uh, because a lot of you know I work as a doctor and helping my patients uh, within the system that we are in is the best I can do right now. So yeah, arguing on social media is the best we can do sometimes. And I strongly believe that it works. There are many people who are watching and listening. And <laughs> I'm sorry for harping on this again. <laughs> But my drama with Tom Morello is another great example of that because everyone watched me get like almost decimated on Twitter <laughs> and I could not have survived it without friends who were originally willing to listen to me talk for like years and months about social issues that came up with this discussion and they were willing to help me and they come and tell me that they learned a lot from listening to you know, for example, the discussion was about racism. So they said they learned a lot from just watching black people interact with 
with white people and explaining their positions and explaining their points of view and other people were actually able to learn a lot from just the interaction alone some people were became friends of mine because of this interaction who were actually against me in the beginning so keep up it's fine as long as it doesn't take out of your time energy and emotional labor and doesn't make you feel more ups more upset <laughs> if it doesn't take out of your self and it doesn't drain you then keep on going for as long as you want to and take breaks if you need to it's fine absolutely fine but don't ever think not you rocks but like <laughs> for everyone who's listening don't ever think that your twitter activism is useless Twitter changed the world and I talked a lot about this in my previous episodes where it it drove a change of a government for heck's sake so don't let anyone tell you that oh Twitter is not the real world you're just a social justice warrior and a keyboard keyboard warrior keyboard warriors are the are the main drivers of social change in the 21st century okay so that's my spiel on that <laughs> anyway um yeah fourth question angelo angelo threw me for a loop with this one because he said he asked do you watch horror movies and if so what is your favorite scary movie and if not why not uh so disclaimer if horror movies are your thing kudos to you for having more guts than i do i'm a wuss and there's nothing i can do about it so anyway when angelo asked this question i knew i wanted to make an informed answer because if I say I like horror movies or I don't like horror movies, that would be an incomplete and dishonest answer. <laughs> because the horror movies are not just one genre. They're actually eight, eight subgenres of, of horror. And I had to go to Google. I knew that there like existed, but I didn't know how many there was. And to give the most amateurish, Google-friendly answer, I found an answer on masterclass.com. I love that website, but for example, you know, um, if we're being honest. So the first category is psychological horror, where such psychological horror from films rely on mental and emotional fear rather than violence or monsters, focusing on character states of mind throughout the story. An example for that is The Shining, Silence of the Lambs and Psycho. <laughs> These movies, I would watch some and I wouldn't watch others. Uh, some I love, like Silence of the Lambs. Uh, Psycho was annoying and I hated it. <laughs> and uh, my main gripe with it is focusing on gore more than the psychological issues itself sometimes. Uh, some of these psychological horrors go toward slasher side of things. And this takes me to the second category, which is slasher films. And slasher films usually focus on a serial killer like Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger, and they go after a group of people. The classic slasher films include Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I hate them, and I don't watch them. <laughs> oh God, I don't like slasher movies, and I don't watch them because, believe it or not, I'm squeamish when it comes to these things. The third category is gore and gore or splatter films zero in on the vulnerability of the human body. So they love to show close-ups of the torture and uh, you know 
like gra graduated to a worse version of the slashers so examples are the evil dead and saw and to be honest with you guys i have not watched the saw franchise or the evil dead for for that matter again squeamish i can't do it and my husband laughs at me because i'm a surgeon but it's hard to explain because when you're a when you're a surgeon you're expected to actually enjoy gore and slasher movies and i don't because in my mind you're there is no comparison okay there's like cutting and blood and stuff sorry sorry if, if this issue triggers you uh or the mention of blood and whatever but <laughs> it's not the same it, it doesn't make any and it could be just me and my weird self but it makes zero sense in my mind to compare the two things for one the person is anesthetized and your intention is to help and you actually reduce the pain as much as you can while for the other it's a completely different objective you're trying to make this person's life the worst possible and inflict as much pain as you can before you end off their lives so yeah i can't do slashers i can't do gore movies the fourth category is called body horror and i don't know why they actually uh you know separated it from gore but anyway, it's closely related to gore, according to the website. And it's films in the body horror subgenre, which may feature scenes of the human body that has been severely altered. Like um, the movies, uh, The Fly, The Thing, and of course, the, exor <laughs> the Exorcist, because of all the body changes that happened through the film. Uh, and again, squeamish, I can't do that, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Although I watched The Exorcist, The Exorcist, and I enjoyed the story, and I'll explain why later, uh, and was able to tolerate the body horror as much as I can, but I watched them. I watched the, exor the original Exorcist at home, with the lights on, <laughs> and you you get the luxury of like closing the screen and and taking a break whenever it gets too much. I made the mistake of watching The Last Exorcist, which was set up in Africa. And I don't remember which year that movie came out, but it was in the mid 2000s. And I just, I, one day I decided to go to the movies. It was on the, on, the, on the roster. And I thought, let's be brave and do it. And I was alone. If I had someone with me like to hold their hands or scream with them or whatever, it would have been a more enjoyable experience. But I was by myself. I don't know what, what, what I was thinking that day, but I did it. So yeah, out of all the body horror movies, I make an exception for The Exorcist for the reasons that, as I said, I'll explain in a little bit. So the fifth category of, of or subgenre of horror movies is found footage. Found footage is um, like a reality footage situation, like the Blair Witch Project or the Clover or Cloverfield. I can't stand these movies. I don't like them. They feel overly pretentious to me, and I know. <laughs> <laughs> that Angelo loves I think I think Angelo is is a fan of the of the Blair Witch project so I'm sorry I'm sorry but it's not for me okay next category is monster horror which um, where many horror films capitalize on the fear of the unknown by featuring frightening monsters from science fiction and dark fantasy werewolves vampires aliens are the most um, the, the most common antagonists of these movies and most recently undead and zombies have joined the category so you know resident evil um 
Dawn of the Dead, Jaws, Godzilla, Frankenstein, Dracula, The Mummy, Alien. My jam. We're finally at my jam. I love these movies. For one specific reason, that uh, especially the dark fantasy genre, I love it. I love reading the books, so naturally I love watching the movies. And they don't really horrify me much because in the back of my mind, I am aware that these are impossible things to actually happen in real life. <laughs> so I love these. these. This is the genre of horror movies that I love. The seventh category is paranormal horror, which is similar to monster horror, but rather than featuring corporeal beings, paranormal horror focuses on the monsters we cannot touch, supernatural entities like ghosts, spirits, and demons. So they usually feature haunted houses, possession, exorcism, or occult worship. And examples are uh, The Exorcist, Paranormal Activity, The Conjuring, The Amityville Horror, The Omen, Carrie, and Poltergeist. I don't really enjoy ghost movies. So something like uh, Poltergeist or The Amityville Horror, mm, not really. But I love possession, <laughs> possession movies. <laughs> and movies that involve demons you know, biblical references to demons. Uh, so anything like The Exorcist or The Omen, I like. Um, Carrie, not so, Carrie, yes. Rosemary's Baby is one of my favorites when it comes to this category. But movies that involve, um, you know, The, the Conjuring, uh, where there is a, a real story background, I'm not really a big fan because it, it capitalizes on trying to convince us that these things are real. Not interested, not much, if that makes sense. The last category is comedy horror, where they're supposed to scare you, but make you laugh at the same time. And uh, it's a touch and go for me. Uh, I liked Scream, which is one of the examples mentioned here. But Cabin in the Woods, haven't watched it. Shaun of the Dead, didn't watch it. Tucker and Dale versus Evil, not a fan. So comedy horror, unless... Uh, I don't know. Not, not interested. There isn't, there isn't even an unless. I think it's not as funny as people think they are. That's my issue with them. And I get more distracted with the horror than the comedy. <laughs> So I didn't really think Scream was that funny, okay? But I enjoyed it as a horror movie, despite not being a fan of slashers or, you know, psychological thrillers. Scream takes a special place in my heart for some reason. So let's sum it all up. Let's talk about my, my personal opinions. I do watch horror movies, but I watch certain genres, as you could have deduced from the spiel I have just finished. And the easy answer would be, I love vampire movies. <laughs> <laughs> I can watch those on loop, which is funny because the first scary movie I watched in my life was a vampire movie when I was a child and it scared the living daylight out of me. I have a bit of a sadistic older cousin <laughs> who whenever we got together in summer holidays, they, they enjoyed playing VHS tapes of weird German vampire movies. I don't know how they even got their hands on them back in the 80s. Okay, so uh, they used to play them and we got forced to sit and watch them <laughs> and then have nightmares all, all through the summer holiday. And me believing that the house we convened in, my aunt's house, 
uh, every summer was haunted did not help much. But as I grew up, I really loved the story of Dracula. And now I can watch almost any rendition of the story possible. So I can also... Um, and because I said I also watch exorcism movies, especially if it involves a robust Catholic aesthetic, I mean, give me a trip to the Vatican or a beautifully ornate church, um, which is always welcome. Uh, the, and I also love references to characters of angels and demons uh, of, of biblical references that I like a lot. This makes Van Helsing, the one starring Hugh Jackman and Kate Beckinsale, one of my favorite vampire movies when it comes to the entire production. It gives me Dracula, it gives me Van Helsing, it gives me some action, it gives me <laughs> biblical references because you know if you know spoiler alert if you haven't watched the movie but if you have watched you know who uh, Van Helsing ended up to be and it gives you werewolves it gives you Hugh Jackman and Kate Beckinsale <laughs> it was a great production and I loved every bit of it I can watch it on loop love it it's like my second favorite one of my favorites after Pacific Rim so anyway um, <laughs> about other vampire movies, uh, I love Dracula Untold. I think Luke Evans' Vlad Dracul is one of the best renditions out there of the character. I love Castlevania, the anime series, uh, for the same one of the, of course, the story is great. There are so many aspects of the production that I love the, the artwork, the characters, the, um, all the vampires involved but it also gives a great rendition of Vlad himself I love that now when it comes to action-oriented vampire movies I can only reference Blade and Underworld um, I you know there are productions like Vampire in Brooklyn etc and they're fine I like them but uh, action-oriented vampire movies have a special place in my heart as well um, and those of you who follow me on Twitter know how I feel about Blade series I watched one. I loved it. Two was a two mm, was all right. Three was an abomination. Like, <laughs> okay, you get Blade, you get uh, Ryan Reynolds, very cool. But the original vampire Vlad, terrible. The dialogue is terrible, terrible, terrible. <laughs> it it sounded like a fan fiction, like a poorly written fan fiction. I don't know how this project was greenlit and filmed and edited and released. Horrible. M minus one out of ten. Seriously. Even the action sequences give this movie no grace. Nothing gives this movie no grace. <laughs> As for Underworld, um, yeah, it was okay, but I wasn't really fond of the story, to be honest with you. But I watched it for Kate, Be for, you know, Kate Beckinsale. I love her. I like this actress very much. So, yeah. Um, and it gives you a good experience while you're watching in a movie theater. I give them that. So, yeah, that's it. Um, what I deliberately will not watch after this long pause <laughs> are the first genre. Uh, some, some aspects of the first genre, which are um, movies that actually depict what humans can do because I already have a terrible view of the world and I don't need my trauma compounded, <laughs> okay? 
<laughs> and this is why I did not watch any of the Saw movies, for example. I do not enjoy the pointless gore, even if the horror movie enthusiasts love, you know, to pontificate about the hidden messages and the socio-political commentary behind someone cutting people up for no goddamn reason. And American Psycho, I'm looking at you. <laughs> Chris would know. <laughs> I cannot tolerate gore. I can't stop repeating that I cannot tolerate gore. And I actually regret the day that I learned that movies like The Human Centipede or Tusk actually exist. Because what the actual fuck? Why? 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 There is absolutely no message that you can give that makes such gore necessary, you know? Like, it's just, you, you get left with a feeling of like, gross, ill no thank you and again no shade of this is your thing people like what they like i just hate these things i hate these movies and it bothers me so much because there is an actual possibility of people doing the shit that was done in these movies like vampire movies unlikely ghost movies very unlikely um godzilla you know if like in 200 or 300 years of pollution it might actually happen <laughs> But I wouldn't mind. But <laughs> movies that like employ a lot of gore and disgusting things. No, thank you. No, thank you. So yeah, I hope that was a good answer for this question. <laughs> and we can move on to the next. Let's see. Fifth question is from Saya. And Saya is my homegirl. I don't really know why she's giving me this tough question that made me like actually scratch my head for a while. But she asks... How do you define success versus failure? And it's a really tough question because how can we actually call ourselves ever successful if there is always something bigger and better to aspire to, right? So what I, what, the conclusion I have come to is to just define your own standards and then try to live up to them and then you can call yourself successful, okay? Because we have to think of the price we pay for the things we aspire for. Let's take professional success, for example, and here's, here's an opportunity for me to brag about learning something from self-help books. There is a concept when it comes to professional success, and it's model, a model that self-help and personal development gurus love to refer to when it comes to professional you know, achievement. It's a Japanese principle called Ikigai, where you draw a Venn diagram between four concepts. What you love, what you're good at, what you're paid for, and what the world needs. And ideally, the perfect spot would be in the middle between these four components. So if you can, you know, do what you love and you're good at it and you get paid well for it and you're actually doing a change in the world, that's actually a, a perfect scenario where you have achieved professional success. Now, we have to be at the best place here considering the circumstances if you can i as i said ideally you need to achieve all four to say that you have become professionally successful but in reality if you can achieve three out of the four that would be great for most people because you know we have to consider people's circumstances their social circumstances their health circumstances where they come from their backgrounds etc so um in reality, it would be hard to reach that sweet spot when we live in a capitalist world that is uncontrolled thanks to the neoliberal policies, and most of us are brainwashed into believing someone like Jeff Bezos is successful. 
we measure success by money most of the time. So we all aspire to hustle culture and a lot of people love to shit on the nine to five jobs. And if you're not a hustler and you don't have like three side hustles beside your job, you're a failure and you're not trying hard enough, etc. And we disregard the challenges of mar marginalized groups a lot. So a lot of these self-help and personal development gurus find themselves falling into pits of classism, ableism, racism, etc. So we have to take people's circumstances in, in account when we talk about success and failure. So in my book, you're successful if you do your best and get the best possible results within the limits of your life. And anyone who calls you otherwise is probably, as I said, classist, ableist, or racist. And as my friend Chris and I agreed, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm building a mansion on this hill. People love to say, I'll die on this hill, but we decided we're going to live and thrive, live, survive, and thrive. <laughs> so I'm building a mansion on this hill and living in it, and you're welcome to join me. And within these contexts that I have mentioned, I would only call someone a failure if they have all the tools to make a change in the world, or no matter how small that change is, that actively refused to take action or help. Not because they are hindered by any uh, sort of bigotry or challenge or handicap, but they just don't want to help and they want to focus only on, on themselves. Otherwise, I would be harshly judgmental on so many people for no reason. I hope that answered the question. <laughs> It's hard to, you know, define success and pontificate on it and set up standards of success for people when you're live. Uh, and I would consider my, myself a privileged person, despite being black, living in the Middle East, blah, etc. I was awarded so many opportunities that I am very grateful for. I am very privileged compared to so many people. I am very privileged compared to so many people around me. I just realized that I touched my microphone. So I don't know how the audio is going to sound in this segment, but we are not editing today. <laughs> okay, so Saya, I love you, but that was a tough one, seriously. Anyway, uh, sixth question, Elby. Elby, my wonderful friend. She asks, what's your favorite memory? And like, Miss Ma'am, I'm an indecisive Libra. I can't decide. So out of the, all the good memories in my life, it's very hard for me to just pick one. So I'll just pick three. <laughs> my first favorite memory is um, the first time I traveled to the UK. And you all know how I feel about the UK, but I love that island. <laughs> so in 2010, I finished my um, UK board exams. They're called, uh, I got what we call membership of the Royal College of Surgeons and Physicians of Glasgow and they held uh, a graduation ceremony in Glasgow of course as the name would entail <laughs> and it was my first trip out of the Middle East so they announced the graduation ceremony in March and it was supposed to be held in October I spent all this time preparing for the trip because it was my first trip outside of the Middle East I was so excited I spent months looking at hotel bookings, flights, train, you know, train reservations, what to do, where to stay, um, you know, how to get the visa, etc. And then traveled six hours on the plane from where I live right now, uh, landed in London, stayed overnight, 
and then uh, took the train to Glasgow, got to my hotel, had the graduation ceremony. My parents joined me the next day and it felt like the biggest professional achievement in my life. I was over the moon because not only that it's a, it's a decent achievement on its own, it's not really common for people to pass the exams from the first trial and I passed the three stages from the first try. So I felt so proud of myself at the time. I felt like I'm, you know, conquered the world. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop me or stand in my way. And the weather was cold, but I enjoyed it because, you know, I live in hell. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, I loved Glasgow. I love the city so much. Uh, I would want to go to it again. Unfortunately, I only managed to go to London on my, you know, following trips to the UK. I love London too. I like the city, but I enjoyed Glasgow so much. And it was the first time I usually pride myself that I have decent English and I don't have problems communicating in English speaking countries, but <laughs> I couldn't order a cup of coffee in Glasgow because the Glas Glaswegian accent was so hard for me and it took me like a day or two to like acclimate myself to understanding what people are saying. So it was a funny experience. I enjoyed it. One of my favorite trips that I've had all through my life. My second uh, favorite memory is it's not second as in second favorite, but like, let's say I'm, I'm mentioning them in chronological order. My second favorite memory was when I when I met my husband the first time in person. We met online and we we started to, we spent about three weeks talking, and then we dis and he lives he lived in another country and I lived here, and we decided to meet up. So the the mo the most um, suitable place for us to meet at the time was Dubai. We both on a whim decided to hop on a plane and meet each other. He arrived at like let's say 8 p.m. in the evening that was about 10 years ago he arrived at 8 p.m. checked into his hotel and then came back to the airport and he was waiting for me because I was supposed to land at 11 p.m. my flight got delayed and I reached the airport <laughs> I reached Dubai at 4 a.m. in the morning looking a mess okay and I keep telling him that was your chance to escape and you didn't so now you're stuck with me forever <laughs> and I can't, that would get too personal, but I can't like talk enough about the, the instant chemistry and we just knew, we just knew that we were, that was it, you know? So yeah, that, that was a very special and endearing moment for me. And my third favorite memory is when I had my daughter. And I'm not going to say it was the day I had her because the day I had her was horrendous, but the, the you know the event itself of getting she's she by the way she's my rainbow baby uh i lost the, my first pregnancy in horrendous circumstances and then i spent almost um a year and a half trying to get pregnant and then when i got pregnant with her <laughs> it was such a funny pregnancy because i was on the straight and narrow doing every possible thing that anyone advises a pregnant woman to do starting from my diet all the way down to changing my skincare routine anything that was like hinted that could affect the baby I avoided okay and then I had her she spent a week in the ICU because she had jaundice and then we came home and it's been, <laughs> it's been a roller coaster ever since but I love that real little gremlin she's like one of my <laughs> best achievements in life and I know, I know, they say you shouldn't, like, 
you know, live your life vicariously through your children or call them your achievements or whatever. They're their own people. But I'm just saying, you know, proverbially, she's my she's my best achievement in life, okay? <laughs> and I love her to bits. So these are my favorite memories in life. Uh, now, the seventh question. Kat, Kat, the scientist, I love her. How do you juggle all the hats you wear? A doctor, a mother, a podcaster, <laughs> a Twitterista. Kat, I love you, but I'm failing miserably <laughs> as we speak because let's 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 talk about each one doctor and mother okay doctor it's my job i can't like flake on it mother i can't flake on it i don't want to flake on it i give my daughter all the attention i can give her um you know wife goes along with mother podcaster and twitterista twitterista is <laughs> is is the manifestation of my executive dysfunction where I would rather be arguing with people on Twitter than do something productive like read or watch Netflix. I consider watching Netflix very productive. So yeah, to answer your questions, I don't because I don't think I can give all these facets of my life the attention they deserve. And some of them would take up most of my day, of course, and others take a backseat, especially the podcast. The podcast suffers the most. <laughs> And it low-key makes, low makes me sad because I mentioned earlier that this is a passion of mine, but no one will beat my ass if I don't post for a month, right? I don't rely on it financially, and you guys are very nice and accommodating, and nobody complains if I don't post, right? So the podcast takes a backseat if, um, if I'm too busy, too overwhelmed, or too exhausted, it just takes a backseat uh, because I then have limited time and energy to do the other, not more, yeah, more important things. Let's be honest. These are more important things. So I try my best to, you know, uh, post in short segments or scripts while I have a free moment, etc. But yeah, I do the, <laughs> I do the best I can right now. Uh, some here's a funny anecdote someone looked at my I had MD in my bio for a while and someone looked at the number of tweets that I post and said there is no way that you're a doctor and you tweet that much <laughs> and it's funny to me because it's actually easy you get a lot of free moments during the day where you can actually check Twitter and respond to someone or say something and it takes the edge off it's a good activity to take the edge off when you're like stressed at work and you have a moment to like express your thoughts about something that's not related to your daily life why not it's 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 not hard at all <laughs> i don't tweet while i operate okay don't judge me <laughs> okay and i think and this is part of the self-blame that happens a lot with me uh, by the way I'm convinced that I have ADHD, but I don't have a professional diagnosis, but I'm going with the self-diagnosis, so here we go. Uh, Self-blame happens a lot, and to be perfectly honest, one would say that would we, I would be able to give all of these aspects of my life complete attention, and you know, do my job, take care of my kid and my house and my husband, and post one episode a week, okay? If I lived a more regimented life, like you know, people who plan their day by the hour and the minute, but I can't just emotionally do it. There's probably some, some level of executive dysfunction with me, and I have been struggling with it for years, but didn't 
didn't realize it, especially during my 20s when I was doing my residency and my job was taking so much of my time and it didn't give me any space to do anything else. And people remember from my reading, from you know my book episode, that I stopped reading for an entire decade because I had no energy to do anything else. And you know, when you're committed to a job where you have to show up on time, uh, spend long hours, be dedicated, like people's lives are on, are, are on the line, you just learn to laser focus all your energy and all your abilities and mental aptitude on that thing because you know if you fuck up you don't fuck up just for yourself you fuck up for other people as well so yeah i've been struggling for years with it and i didn't i don't think i can access a diagnosis i don't think i access a medication right now so yeah we're flying by the seat of our pants here (laughs) oh god so yeah that was the answer for like juggling all the hats all you know juggling all the balls all the balls are on the ground right now (laughs) sorry cat for disappointing you but i love you okay last question comes from ryan (laughs) why are you so cool Uh, well yeah i am very cool I'm, i'm the coolest cat out there and it's a combination of cheese sandwiches living the life that i have lived (laughs) and being open to different experiences you get me Uh, yeah you get me and how cool I am right now so yeah that's the end of the Q&A session I hope you enjoyed it and I realized that my script was also rambled but good luck (laughs) and I hope you love it All right, friends, if you have reached the end of the episode, thank you so much for listening and I appreciate you very much. I hope this episode was entertaining and illuminating enough for you guys to tune in next time. I love you all. Take care of yourselves, take care of others. And because the pandemic is not over and it seems like it's going to get worse um, with the new variants that are trash, wash your hands, wear that mask, keep on social distancing and get vaccinated if you can. See you next time. I love you all and take care. Bye-bye.